And hello, Lighthouse. Good to see you once again. We're back in the book of Judges after our Easter weekend, and we just trust that God has blessed you in a wonderful way. Uh, I know that with all that's transpiring in our province at this point, uh, it, we live in challenging times, but we want to take our encouragement from the Word of God and allow His Holy Spirit to speak to us and be challenged by it. My name is Pastor Adrian Linneber. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Lighthouse Church. Been here just about four years, so if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Judges, chapter 13, we're looking at the entire chapter in our study today. I'm talking about message, Samson and separation. Now the question sometimes comes up, separation, holiness, what's it really all about? We don't really hear too much about the words holiness or separation today very often. Yet in God's word in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, we read these words, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then we read on in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And yet we're also called to be salt and light in this earth. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16, Jesus lays this out with his disciples. So the question is, how do we live in this world and be separated and not be conformed to it? A real challenge. Unfortunately, there's a plethora of ideas on that whole issue as to how we live in this world. Some go to what I would call an extreme idea of separation and absence from different practices and isolation from unbelievers. In other words, um, we're going to dress different. Uh, we're not going to do what the unbelievers do. And we're going to do all these things to the point of isolating ourselves and developing our own, in a sense, communities where the world cannot infiltrate and be separated from them and live in that way, in that shape and form. However, does that really work in terms of what the gospel has called us to do? Absolutely not. Others, however, go to the other extreme. They associate with unbelievers and assimilate their practices and beliefs. So the person that does that is an individual that has got both feet in the world, goes along with everything that's going on in the world, and people look at them and say, you're a believer? Really? And that's a challenge that we face in our world. How do I live a holy, godly life, separated unto God, but let live in this world in such a way that people see Christ through me and that I don't become assimilated by those around me in terms of their beliefs and practices? I think we can learn a lot from the life of Samson, who will be studying uh, in these next four weeks. So stay tuned with us over the next four weeks as we study this. Not all the lessons of Samson's life are virtuous. He's a man of great talent, great strength, but squandered resources. You look at the life of Samson, you think to yourself, my goodness, if this guy had really channeled and harnessed the energy that God had given him and used it fully for God's purposes, man, what he could have done. Unfortunately, sometimes that's the story of our lives too, isn't it? We look at our lives and sometimes we've become assimilated by the world around us. We've Our testimony has been uh, gone downhill. We've not really lived for Christ. And there's times we'll look at our lives and say, you know, if I 
I'd only live for God in a greater way, my life would have a greater impact. And so we're going to learn a lot from the life of Samson, what it means to be holy, what it means to be separated under God. But as we do today, let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing on his word to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We want to say thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is inspired and that it is inerrant and that it speaks to us every single day. So, Father, no matter what we're going through today, we just say, Lord, uh, like Sammy of old, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So, Father, help us not only to hear, but to put into practice what we will learn today. So, bless your word to our hearts, and I do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're picking up in verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for about 40 years. Did evil in the sight of the Lord is a phrase that we hear over and over and over again till you get nauseated because you say, don't people, God's people ever learn? Don't they ever understand that when you do evil, there's consequences and that it diminishes your, your whole uh, lifestyle in terms of glorifying God? The idea is that the cycle of sin that we've talked about over and over again is repeated once again. The cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, spiral downward into sin is again continuous in the history of Israel. The part of the cycle that brings enslavement is the longest record of oppression in the book of Judges. We see here that they were under oppression by the Philistines for 40 years. And I want you to note something. There's no aspect here where you see the nation of Israel crying out in repentance, saying, oh God, save us from the situation. That's not really happened. There's no crying out to God for deliverance from the Philistines. In the verse 2 we read, there's a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren, and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So Zor was on the border between Dan and Judah, opposite Beshemeth, close to the Soaring Valley, and uh, it was close to where the Philistines also resided. You know, somebody said if Manoah's wife had not been barren, perhaps the angel not, would not have been sent to her. But afflictions have this advantage in that they occasion God to show his mercy Whereas when things are going well, we don't always see God's mercy as well. Interesting, though, how God shows up in what I call a trying situation. The uh, couple who uh, are barren, and the biggest joy and delight, in the, especially in that day and that or even today, is for a, a couple to go childless. It's a struggle. It's a challenge. And here God shows up in that trying situation. He brings blessing to a dear couple who are struggling with conception. But he's done that before. He's done it in Sarah's life, in Rachel's life, in Hannah's life, and there's others as well. Uh, God speaks into the situation to bring blessing and salvation into what we call a dire situation. See, God does interview or intervene in desperate situations, even when we haven't reached out to him. Did you get that? God sometimes will go into situations where we where they're desperate situations, things aren't going well. And even though they haven't repented, even though they haven't cried out to God for help, he still intervenes because our God is a God of compassion. He's a God of love. 
The empty womb is off the starting place in the purposes of God. He calls life out of death and uses the things that are not to confound the things that are. We see in verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Warren Worsby said this, When God wants to do something really great in this world, he doesn't send an army, but it, rather he sends a messenger. I like the way he puts that. So the angel of the Lord visits a couple and promises to send them a baby. His great plan of salvation got underway when he called Abraham and Sarah and gave them Isaac. When he wanted to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage, God sent a baby, Moses, to Amram and Jochebed. In later years, Israel needed revival. And God gave baby Samuel to a woman named Hannah. All how God does things. And when the fullness of time arrived, when the world was in darkness and needed salvation and hope, God gave baby Jesus to Mary. And that baby grew up to die on the cross for the sins of the world. God always sends someone, something specific to deliver his people. In verse 4 we read, therefore be careful. He's, this is the angel now talking to Manoah's wife. Be careful, drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. These instructions are in preparation for Samson being a Nazarite, which is usually voluntary, but in Samson's case was the divine decree of the angel. This is what he was saying. You're going to be a Nazarite to God from the womb, from the very moment of conception. And so it appears from the instructions that Manoah's wife also had to share in the Nazarite vow during her time of gestation as she carried the little baby Samson. We see in verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor will come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. What's a Nazarite mean? I'm glad you asked that question. A Nazarite means consecrated, separated, devoted. And in this current context, the object of consecration, separation, devotion is unto God. This institution was a symbol of a life devoted to God and separated from all sin, a holy life. That was to be Samson's life. Now, let me give you four points from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, about a Nazarite vow. First of all, a Nazarite vow, as elucidated in number six, was first of all, it was voluntary. It was something that a person could choose to do. Second, it was purposeful. There's a purpose behind being a Nazarite. It wasn't something you did to show off. It was something that showed that you were dedicated to God and that you wanted to serve God in a specific way. It was also symbolic. That's the third point. It meant he was to abstain from wine, not cut his hair, and avoid contact with a dead person so as not to defile himself. And point four, oftentimes the Nazarite vow was temporary. But in this case for Samson, his separation was not voluntary, but rather it was commanded by God. Another point needs to be made here. As you look at this uh, last verse, it says that his role, if you underline your Bibles, you need to underline this, his role was to begin, you hear that word, begin, to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Why? Samson was not to actually complete the deliverance. He was only to begin it. For the yoke of the Philistines was not fully shaken off 
the neck of Israel till the time of King David. Thus God carries on his work gradually and he uses several people to do it. One lays the foundation of a good work, another builds and perhaps a third brings forth the top stone, says the author, Mr. Henry. We see in verse 6, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. Notice that it says the angel of the no Lord notices her affliction. God often sends his angels to comfort people very often in the time of trial. And the trial that this dear couple was going through is that they were childless. But this deliverer of Israel also that he was going to send and have this baby born was going to be a consecrated deliverer of Israel. Uh, but his wife was satisfied that the messenger was of God. She told her husband exactly what had happened to her. Just a little side note here. Husbands and wives should share with each other their experiences with God and so doing encourage each other in their walk with God. Do you do that? Sometimes I meet couples and I say, hey, when God does things in your life, do you share that with your husband? Or I'll say to the husband, when God works in your life and does something unique and shows you something in the Word, do you take time to share it with your wife? That's so vital in building a strong spiritual relationship between husband and wife. We see that Manoah and his wife had such a relationship. And she says to her husband, he told me, verse 7, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. He's going to be consecrated, committed to me all the days of his life. He is to be holy, godly, from his birth to his death. The only Nazarites for life that we really know of in Scripture are Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, and to these Jewish traditions sometimes as Absalom, Absalom as a man by the virtue of his long hair. I think that's stretching it. No one voluntarily took that vow for life. All the cases recorded being those of parents who dedicated their children to the Lord. And that's such a, a wise thing to do. You know, oftentimes people will come up to me as a pastor and say, hey, can I, will you baptize my baby? I said, no, I won't baptize your baby. They say, why don't you do it? I said, well, it's not found in Scripture. It's not a, there's not a biblical basis for it. However, I said, if you as parents want to dedicate your child to the Lord, yeah, I, I will work with you on that. But again, remember, the key aspect of this is that you as parents are promising to bring your child up in the nurture and admonition of God and you're making that promise before a congregation that you're making this promise before God, I'm going to raise my child in a holy, godly way to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, in doing so, that aspect of it, you are honoring the Lord and you're obeying the word. And that same precedent was sent by Joseph and Mary when they took their child, who was Jesus, and at eight days of old, who was not only circumcised, but he was dedicated to the Lord at that point by Anna and Simeon in the temple. And so, as a result of the sharing that happened between Manoah and his wife, we see in verse 8, that Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us 
what we are to do with the child who will be born. This prayer is often really what I would call a good template for all parents to pray. If you're a parent, you might stop for a moment and entreat the Lord on behalf of your son or your daughter and pray that God would help you and guide you in raising up a son or daughter that loves Jesus. I can't help but be impressed with the devotion of this couple and how they wanted to work together and making sure they were going to do what honored the Lord. See, the time of Judges, as we read it in Scripture, was a time of apostasy and anarchy. But there are still Jewish homes that were dedicated to the Lord and that believed in prayer and believed that God was still working and wanted God's wisdom and guidance in how to raise children. The subsequent course of events in Sansa's life show that godly parents don't necessarily always raise obedient, godly children. And I, you need to know that sometimes we, we take that verse out of Proverbs 22.6. It's not a fail-safe. It says, train up a child the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And I've seen many parents raise their children in the nurture and admonition of God, take them to church, take them to Sunday school, and then watch that child walk off and live an ungodly life and have nothing to do with God. It's sad. But again, the challenge even in biblical scriptural leadership in 1 Timothy is to that uh, a godly man, a deacon, an elder in the church needs to raise his children in the nurture and admission of the Lord. He is to teach them the ways of God. He is to see that represented in his children's lives. And Samson's parents appear to be clearly seeking God's wisdom. How do we bring up Samson? And yet we see Samson makes choices clearly not in seen and evidenced in God's will whatsoever. But you see that God listened to the voice of Manoah. It says that and God listened to the voice of Manoah, verse 9. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. How clearly does it prove that nothing is more acceptable to God than a sincere desire to know what God wants us to do. Today, we have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us. And as we really want to know, how do I do what I, how do I raise my children in the ways of the Lord? How do I walk in the ways of God? Take your Bible, my friend, study it, read it, practice it. Because when you do, you'll find God's word will enlighten you as to how you're to live and how you're to obey God. We see in verse 11 that Manoah, after hearing his wife, arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? See, Samson's parents had a fear of God and tried to instill this same fear in their son. They brought offerings to God, dared to believe his wonderful promises. There's every indication that Samson's parents were godly. So why did Samson go the way he did? We're going to discuss that later. To raise a dedicated and godly child requires godly responses in the parents and in the child. And that's why it's so important to teach our children in the nurture and admonition of Scripture. One of the blessings I had as a boy growing up, along with my brothers, is that my mother would always take the Bible 
many times in the Old Testament, my friend, and she would read the scriptures to us at night, and then she would quiz us uh, to make sure that we were listening to what she was saying, and there was questions to be actually answered uh, as, after she had done her the scripture reading with us. My father also read the scriptures to us, and so there was that foundation laid so that I knew the Old Testament and a lot of the biblical stories very clearly from a young child. Even to the point I remember going to Sunday school at, at Bradley Baptist Church and the pastor uh, not only having sword drills, you probably, some of you remember that, but also he would quiz us on different questions on the Bible. And I remember my brother Ralph and I just answering rapid verbatim. We knew the answers. Why? Because we've been grounded by our mother and father in knowing the word of God. Folks, remember that. That's the best education you can give your children. We see in verse 13, And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So the angel of the Lord basically reiterates what has already been said. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong to kind of hear the word of God over and over again. But sometimes we need to hear the instructions more than once. At least I do. As parents, the question we should sometimes ask ourselves is not, how can we produce a more godly or successful child, but rather, how can we be more godly parents? You hear what I said? The biggest influence you will have on your child's life sometimes is not so much what you say and what you talk about, but your actions speak louder than the words. You heard that over and over again. It's a biblical principle. And so our prayer should be, as Dave Roper says, Lord, make us the kind of parents you want us to be. Lord, shape my life, mold my life, so that I might be a godly influence on the children and grandchildren you've blessed me with. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. For, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. And in brackets it says, For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah wished like Gideon did to give a hospitable entertainment to a man who had brought him such great news. The angel's willingness to accept a sacrificial offering to the Lord, which is tantamount to an act of worship, provides support that this angel is God and not a created angel. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, in John's uh, book, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19.10, we read these words. And I, John, fell at his feet to worship. That's an angel. And he, in context, an angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. The angel would not allow John to worship at his feet. He said, worship God. But in this situation, the angel said, uh, you can do the sacrifice. I'll accept it. Again, it gives you a hint that the angel of the Lord was none other than God himself, we often, another term we call that is a theophany, and the idea is that God would appear in human form 
at time to time in the Old Testament to speak to his people and to intervene in their lives, just as he had in Gideon's. Verse 17, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, a bit of a snoop, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? That word wonderful pertains to a, being a cause of wonder, worthy of amazement, speaks of things relating to God, beyond human, human comprehension, marvelous, remarkable. But I'm reminded of Isaiah 9, 6, which says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know what's unique? This was God himself appearing to this couple with this fantastic news that they were going to have a baby. Somebody has observed, in Christ we have a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, and a spiritual resource that can never be exhausted. And that's from our daily bread. So Manoah, verse 19, takes the young goat with the grain offering and offers it on a rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching. They fell on their faces to the ground. And all of a sudden they realized, oh my goodness, this wasn't any ordinary angel. This was God. See, ordinary Jewish worshipers brought their offerings to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. But since the man of God had commanded Manoah to offer a sacrifice there, it was permissible for him to do it using the rock as an altar. When you fall on one's face, it's generally seen all throughout Scripture as an act of worship in the Bible. Verse 21 says, The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. His wife said to him, If the Lord had intended to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. We shall surely die. Because we have seen God. Where did they get that idea? Well, they got that idea when the nation of Israel was at Mount Sinai. For when Moses entreated the Lord to show him his glory, and they would remember that story, God had answered, You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. And for that reason, God put Moses into the cleft of the rock and permitted him to see, as it were, only his back parts, a partial display of his glory. So it's all evident among the nation of Israel. You can't see God face to face because if you do, you'll die. But what's unique to Manoah and his wife, they realized we'd seen God. And we pick it up in verse 24, the wonderful culmination here. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. Samson's name was given to him by his mother. Samson means actually a little son, S-U-N. Some 
commentators feel it was an allusion to the shining countenance of the angel when he first appeared to Manoah's wife. Little son. And then we see in verse 25. And the Spirit of the Lord began to steer him in Menethdan between Zorah and Eshtal. The hand of God was upon Samson in a very special way. And as you ponder the record of Samson's life, you get the impression that really he was a fun-loving fella with a good sense of humor, and sometimes he didn't take his gifts or the work that God had gave him very seriously. You know, a sense of humor is a good thing to have, but it must be balanced with our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. As I conclude today, let me give you some points about separation and holiness. Separation is a positive dedication to the Lord. The threat of the Philistines was assimilation. So the Philistines didn't come with their armies trying to beat them all up, which we often see at this point, in, through different points in the book of Judges. But rather, well, if you want to get married to one of the Philistine girls, the Philistine rulers said, yeah, no problem. If you want to uh, get some uh, iron, because they were really good iron smelters, they were able to take iron and forge into weapons. Well, they had to come to the Philistines <coughs> to be able to get those instruments. As a result of that, the threat to Israel at this point was assimilation into Philistine society, so they began to accept and adopt the ways of the Philistines. See, believers tend to see separation oftentimes as joyless rulers, rules that keep us from enjoying life rather than to honor God in all things. Say, when I became a Christian, then I, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do this. I still remember one of the first churches I was at as a youth pastor. I remember that in order to be a member of that church, you couldn't drink, you couldn't smoke. Not bad ideas, actually. You couldn't play cards. So where does that in the Bible? You couldn't play cards. You couldn't go to movies. And they, they had all these rules and guidelines. And the idea was, by keeping all these rules, you'll be holy and godly. Well, the sad truth is, they weren't more holy. They were not more godly. Even though they didn't do those things, and we knew it was part of the whole idea. For every member of the church, there are certain things you just don't do. Because oftentimes, as a pastor and a counselor of that day, some of the things that those families were struggling with were just appalling. Rule-keeping does not produce holiness. Mark my words. And yet, there's a sense, too, that Samson saw these rules and guidelines as something i got to do it, but I really don't want to. See, God doesn't call us to isolation, to isolate ourselves from the world, but he calls us to a relationship with him. And as I spend time with Jesus in his word, as I spend time in worship with him, as I sing his praises, as I seek to live for him, he transforms my life so I live a holy, godly life that is pleasing to him. You hear that? He doesn't call us to isolation. What's the pattern then to be for the believer in this world? Well, I'm glad you asked. In John 17, 15 to 17, listen to Christ's high priestly prayer. He says this to the Lord, to his Father. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth. What's the truth, my friend? The word of God. Your word is truth. 
Dr. Gary Henry, I like his quote. A separated Christian is Bible-centered, Christ-controlled Christian in whom God is reproducing his character by the Holy Spirit. I need to repeat that. A separated Christian is Bible-centered, Christ-controlled Christian in whom God is reproducing his character by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we need to ask ourselves, as I walk in my relationship with Jesus Christ, am I growing in my walk with him so that I understand his word better? Am I applying his word diligently to my life so that people can see the character in my conduct as being like Jesus? Because that's what he wants. His desire for you, my friend, who know Jesus, is that you be conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. How does it happen? Not by outward influence, but through the Holy Spirit of God in your heart as he transforms you from the inside out. So as you spend time with him, you are changed into his likeness. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. And Father, maybe that's a challenge to each one of us. For some of us, we've got so involved in the world that people, even our friends, don't even know we're Christians. So help our speech and our conduct to bring honor and glory to you. And Lord, when it doesn't, that we be quick to confess our sin and make it right with you. Father, we're to be salt and light in a world of darkness. The people thirst for the living God because of what they see evidenced in and through our lives. Lord, be glorified in us, I pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.